Welcome to Habits and Hope, the podcast that is not about perfection. It is about purposeful progression. We are trading out feelings of discontent, anxiety, fear, and defeat for joy, peace, freedom, and hope. Hello, beautiful people. It is allergy season in Tennessee. But I have my tea, and hopefully that will not be a hindrance to this episode. More importantly, and more excitingly, is that it is Easter week, and I have really been working on something. Of course, as always, I've pretty much been following the path that God has led me on throughout this whole thing. And as I started going down the path, I realized... Oh, this one's leading me definitely to be what needs to happen on the week of Easter, and I really hope I do it the justice. I am doing my best to calm down my poor little ADHD brain (laughs) and uh, keep moving towards being concise because I know I get super excited about all that he shares with me. And I want to make sure that you grasp everything that I get from that. Um, Of course, our conversations, which, sorry, we've had a few long ones. The conversations with our guests, uh, they could get a little all over the place. I I think we do our our best, I hope, (laughs) at at keeping it as on track and and kind of leading you through whatever we're talking about. But... um, Hopefully, either way, all of it's something you can appreciate and get something from, but I think that this one is a doozy, so buckle up, buttercup. We are venturing into a very popular and beloved topic today. I am slightly kidding, but I hope to change your mind about this topic. This topic is the fear of the Lord, so... Yeah, it does not generally bring warm, fuzzy feelings. But the Bible, uh, the Bible says, "Fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom." And that's Proverbs nine ten. I'm just gonna list these out. Most of these are in Proverbs, but if you want to go to the scriptural references, they will be in the show notes. But uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It prolongs life. It is the fountain of life. It is a treasure. It is strong confidence and a refuge. It is a blessing. And honestly, I could keep going on and on. There's so many verses about this. Like if you just look up verses about the fear of the Lord. But the bottom line is, I think you started to get that this is not something about being scared of something. And there's not really a negative connotation, actually. And so obviously, there's more to this than what we typically think of when we think of fear and and being scared. So let's unpack some of that. The word that we generally see translated as fear is usually yira, which is Y-I-R-A-H in case you want to dive in alongside of me. Yira means awe. It is things that render you speechless. It is a wonder if you've ever like stood at the top of the Grand Canyon or the base of Mount Rainier or at uh, a meteor shower, there, there's many things, or even the birth of a child. These are things that take 
your breath away. These are things that may humble you. These are things that bring out of you a reverence and respect and things like that. That is basically, in a nutshell, in a quick summary of what Yira is intended to mean, not just fear. Another part of this is grasping and respecting power and holiness, along with our need, our reliance on him, his wisdom, his forgiveness, his goodness. Now, I firmly believe that if this, if you truly give in to this and you fully grasp you know, take hold of all that God has for you, I feel that naturally you get this peaceful place in your heart, your mind, and your soul, and that you just kind of naturally come to understand what all this really means. And like, I'm like, I've been at peace with this for a long time. This is not something that necessarily bothers me until I try to explain it. And so, you know, I, it's really hard sometimes to put into words. So, but I felt like I was supposed to kind of go here and and dwell on this. But I was really trying to think of a way to explain this to anyone, because I do think that this becomes a huge stumbling block sometimes to Christians or potential Christians or people who are looking to basically make arguments against ever being a Christian. So, it, uh, joking, sort of, pun aside, um, it kind of hit me like a lightning bolt, and I realized that electricity was a fantastic analogy for this. So, we are extremely reliant on electricity and all things electronic. I look around you right now and how many things are running on electricity. One of the greatest fears, even, is that if it all shut down tomorrow, it could potentially completely bring the world as we know it to its knees. If you have lived in a time before any of the things like TVs, microwaves, smartphones, the internet, etc., most of you would have an awe for where this has all brought us, what we can do now. And if you trust me, my mother, who um, is completely terrified of technology, remarks on all these things all the time of like, well, we were never able to do things like this before. And so electricity changed the very world we live in very quickly. And it led to the access of information and things like that we never had before. That being said, Even my husband, who has worked on all things electrical for over 20 years and in crazy dangerous situations such as live high voltage electricity, meaning this is not powered down, um, very, very dangerous. Um, So, but he's very, very capable of doing about anything with, you know, running wires and repairing and and that sort of stuff. Yet he has a very sincere and healthy respect, hopefully as he should, for its power. If you break the rules, quote unquote, of electricity, very much by its general nature, it will seriously injure or kill you. The wrong wire, 
a nail through a wire, a funny story about that one day, can burn a house down to the ground. But that doesn't mean that we go back to living in the dark ages out of fear. It means we stay within the guidelines or we rely on wisdom beyond our own, like hiring someone else, when we aren't comfortable. Legalism in much of different religions and Christianity has caused many of us to reject the ideas that God wants us to act a certain way and expect something from us, certain behaviors and so forth. But when we are truly humbled and we are following him, we by nature obey or we can expect consequences. So in Exodus 9, 18 through 30, Moses, like they've already seen seven plagues at this point, okay? So all these things have happened. All these wondrous signs that God is way in control. And this was challenged many times by the Egyptian Pharaoh of, well, but, you know, how do I really know it's God that's doing these things? And over and over again, the signs keep getting more and more precise to show this can't be anything but God. So here we are on the eighth plague, and Moses says there's going to be a great hailstorm that will kill anyone outside. Yet, some of his own people listened, but some did not. They didn't come inside, and they didn't bring their animals. And of course, those that didn't listen were killed or injured. When Moses is asked to basically stop the situation, he tells the Pharaoh that when he leaves, he would raise his hands, stop it, so that they would know that all the earth belongs to the Lord, and that yet he knew that the officials still did not fear the Lord. And he's basically saying, like, you've already seen all these things, but I know you still have no respect for God and his power. God sees the people of it, soon to be people of Israel, through the Red Sea, the lack of water, the lack of food. I mean, water came from a rock, food fell from heaven. Yet every time Moses and God basically turn around, they lose sight. They see him, them losing sight of what he can really do or why he should follow him. And over and over again, Moses is just is like, why won't you just obey? Why won't you just do what is being asked of you and just trust? And that really falls true to us. Many of us want God to keep rescuing us after we follow our own path instead of staying on his path that is free from a lot of cliffs and storms and so forth. And, you know, when we've wandered off, we want to know why we're going through what we're going through. And so I, I, I am sure that God has felt like Moses, even with me and probably a lot of us of why won't you just obey? So I was also reading in Exodus 25 and on I think it goes on 26, maybe 27 and so forth. And there's this really long part where it talks about all these precise, precise design instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the lampstand, the clothing, etc. 
even how Aaron had to dress a certain way. Now, this is paraphrased, so I might get a little bit of this off, but basically he had to dress and wear a certain thing so that Israel, the people of Israel would be accepted in God, by God. And basically that, you know, their sins would be forgiven without this, that he would actually succumb to like the guilt and the holy presence and he would die. Pardon me if I got a little bit of that off, but I was just amazed at some of these things. One, at just God sitting there designing this and all this detail. And um, finally, they're listening and obeying and they're and they're reverently, you know, doing everything he asks. And how cool is it that he's sitting there making these such precise designs down to use this wood, use this metal and make it this long. It's it's tremendous. It also dawned on me that a lot of, or that pretty much all of us, they're going to be packing this around. This is meant to be mobile, even though it's not what you and I would generally think of being mobile. So they're packing this around and what ended up being their 40-year journey in the wilderness, mostly because, again, they didn't obey. But And then this was the big one that really hit me. I'm like... He made it so much easier for us. We now have a way to be made righteous, to be made right, and to be in his presence. It's so much easier. And yet we've lost all of our reverence and awe and respect. It's easier, so we take it for granted. And that one kind of hit me really hard. I was, I was sitting there studying it going, okay, (laughs) this is an area in the Bible that I would typically want to skim through, but I've learned that there's, there's something almost, there's something pretty much in everything, even though a lot of it in, in certain areas was meant to be a historical reference. If you pause and you just give God a moment to show up, he, will help you see what there is to see. So I feel like he really did that in that in that instance. So I want us to take a moment and in honor of Easter that is coming this Sunday and doing my best to make sure this gets out in time. I had to do a little additional research. I had to also remind myself of some of this. I do remember learning a good bit of this in a college class and it never left me. It really hit me then. So I hope that it hits you the same way. And this is a little hard, a little bit, this is a little bit of a struggle. So I bear with me because there is purpose in the pain. And the I learned basically all that Jesus really did and went through to make that path so much straighter, so much easier is the best I could say. And here was even the crazy thought part. I was sitting there rewriting my notes, but right before, like I was trying to reorganize things, had a little extra structure, like I said, rain in the ADHD brain. And here at this very moment, the Here I Am to Worship song by Jeremy Camp comes in my ears and it keeps saying over and over again, I will never know how much it cost to see my name upon that cross. I had a moment that I had awe. I was just, first of all, the timing of that song was, was wild. Of course, there's always God. He always can. And, um, 
I'm literally about to take you on this journey. So I had been in Mark on 14 and 15 when I was like kind of making my notes. But of course, you know, really you can go into pretty much all the, uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you can gather all the bits and pieces basically because you're basically getting eyewitness accounts from all the different guys that were there. Okay, so we're talking about the crucifixion. And before this journey to our salvation begins, Jesus in his most humanness <laughs> goes and prays. And, you know, there's the, the godliness of him that knows what must be done. There's the reverent person of him that is obeying. But there is just the fact that he is very human in a very human form. And he knows what he is truly about to endure. So he is praying earnestly and fervently asking God to take the cup from him. He is respectful and he is understanding. But he really knew what was about to take place. It was going to be excruciating. Yet, he was obedient, and yet he was so stressed that he was sweating blood. And that is some stress. That is, that is some stress. So, now, after this, before the cross, he is offered something called gall. And this is something that I have kind of breezed past. And, um, again, all through this journey, to help you... And help me help you. I try to pause on things in the past I may have missed. So, gall. What is it? It is wine mixed with myrrh and herbs. What is its purpose? It is to dull the pain. It is like the morphine sort of of its time. Bottom line is, it would have eased his pain. It would have made it easier. Did he take it? No. No, he refused because he had to receive the full brunt, the full weight of the punishment. He had to take on the full punishment for our sin so that he could then truly be our substitute, that he could truly take our place. So he starts off with that sacrifice. Now later, if you'll remember, he did take the wine vinegar from the hyssop. Now the wine vinegar was meant to relieve thirst. And it, it was generally then seen to be more refreshing of a drink than water. Well, that sounds like a great thing, except for at this point, the first one would have relieved his pain, the, the gall, but this one actually would have kept him conscious longer, you know, refilling a little bit of those electrolytes and, and relieving the thirst. It actually would prolong his pain. He took no shortcuts. And also, he knew that he had to he had to fulfill that part because he was fulfilling scripture scripture back to Psalms uh, sixty nine twenty one, and also that it would be a symbol to remind the Jewish people of the Passover when they used the hyssop to spread the blood over the houses, the blood that saved the Israelites and his blood that saved mankind. Already, there's so much there, but we're not done. So crucifixion, this is the hard part. This was invented to be one of the most painful ways to die. Remember, this was not invented just for Jesus. This was 
how the Romans took out the bad people. This was slow, painful suffering. Nails would have likely been put through the wrist because the soft flesh of the hand would have torn. And in doing so, in putting it in the wrist, it would have likely severed nerves and caused excruciating pain. Now you have the full weight of the body on the wrist and it causes the shoulders and the elbows to dislocate. Then that weight of all that pushes down on the nail in the ankles. There's so much weight on the body, particularly the upper body, that in order to breathe, the chest is kind of limited right now because there's so much weight and it can't move up and down because the body weight is pulling down so hard on the diaphragm that the air remains there. So the only way he can catch a breath is to push up on his nailed feet to exhale. Exhale. Mind you, like at this point, like I said, the shoulders are dislocated, his elbows are dislocated because of that sheer weight, and everything's now resting pretty much on that nail. And so he's got to take all that body weight up, pushing on that nail. Probably again, I don't know if there'd be, they didn't, it didn't mention the nerves in the foot and the ankle, but I imagine if there's nerves in the wrist that would have hit probably the same as the ankle. And so they're pushing, it's pushing up. Um, mind you again, sorry, I keep saying mind you, but he has open wounds on his back. So every time that he pushes up, he is scraping his back that has open wounds on it against the cross. And I, I know that the cross is in the church, <laughs> look really sanded and pretty and uh, polyurethane, but this probably was not so. It was probably very rough. So, you know, I mean, maybe splinters and it was bad. The difficulty of breathing and just, I mean, every breath, every breath is a huge exertion. So that difficulty of breathing causes carbon dioxide to build up in the, in the blood. And it results in a high level of carbonic acid. The body responds by having the heart to be faster, to circulate as much oxygen as possible. You know, the body has some pretty amazing fight, fight or flight uh, situations. It, it kicks in certain things, and so it's just trying to take what oxygen it does have and get it throughout the body as fast and as efficient as possible. That decreased oxygen causes the damage of the tissues and capillaries and they start, sorry, causes damage to the tissue and the capillaries start leaking watery fluid, watery fluid from the blood of the tissues and fluid builds up around the heart and the lungs. The lungs collapse. The heart fails. There's dehydration, suffocation, and asphyxiation. I can't say this one, asphyxiation, <laughs> cannot get it out, all occurring. And I'm not trying to make a lot of it, just struggle a little bit here. But basically, Jesus likely died, very excruciatingly, but of a heart attack. And then you'll know that the Roman soldiers generally come along and break the legs so that they can no longer push themselves up to get a breath, to speed along. But when they went into that for Jesus, he was already gone. And a lot of that is 
so many of those pieces are all um, tied to prophecy. So if you ever want to dive into that, like it's some pretty pretty cool scripture references where you look at what happened and what had been prophesied. But then they pierced his side, if you remember this part, and they saw the blood and the fluid, and that seeing that fluid, okay, they knew the fluid had done his job. He truly was dead, and all the things that I told you really, really, really did happen um, because that was proof. And um, those Roman people were some <laughs> a little sadistic, but very smart people. And then the centurion says that was part of that. Um, he truly was the son of God. And why did he say that? Well, there's a lot of theories. And of course, there was a lot there going on. I mean, mind you that there's earthquakes and, and things happening. But there was also the thought that truly having basically crucified many, many men, they had never seen someone die or be crucified like Jesus, not screaming in agony and and (laughs) cursing people around him. No, he was forgiving. He was quiet, kind. He was peaceful. And he just died like a savior, like a king. And if all that was not enough, then he went and defeated death and rose up again in victory. And while we don't know what all that entailed, I can't imagine that defeating death is a small task. Oh, yeah. If that all did not put you in a place of awe, then I have one more piece of that. I recently heard someone say, as a reminder for me and you, if you or me were the last human on the earth, if it had been only for you, he still would have done it all. He didn't do it because of anything we did. He did it out of love and grace. We will never ever be able to earn what he gave. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's hard. And I, and I hope that leaves you in a place of awe. And I hope you don't take that my, some of my struggles with reading and probably trying to make a little light of, of a very emotionally intense situation. And don't take that out of, out of disrespect at all, because that was never the situation. It, uh, that was, it's a tough one to, to think about. And, but I think if we don't, I think we miss a lot. Um, so now we move on and we go, he didn't take a single shortcut and he certainly didn't do that so that we can now take shortcuts and we do technically have a shortcut to heaven, but that wasn't why he didn't want to just like go on about your life and do things life as normal. He didn't intend for us to live life without any impact and, and without any changes, So we are, though, supposed to wrap ourselves in freedom and joy that he intended for us and not act like he did it all for nothing. And yet at the same time, we are to honor the sacrifice through our decisions and the choices that we make. We are free now and out of awe, we can reframe our thoughts. So (laughs) 
I recently was frustrated with someone personally that I was genuinely trying to help. I was trying to show kindness with someone that has had a lot of, there's been a lot of intense emotions between in this relationship in the past. Um, but basically every effort I made to calm things down or whatever, every single word, every single action was basically taken the wrong way. I was praying about it and like, do I do more? Is this just, just going to end ridiculously? And I was given a vision of a trapped or injured animal that needs help, but all they can see is their pain. They are filtering every action, including the help, through the filter of pain and discomfort. I guarantee you, you have probably not walked this earth without experiencing this in someone before. This is so human and this is so normal. And the more I thought on it, the more I realized that we all sort of walk around with filters, like an Instagram filter that makes everything look a certain way. Which all brings me to this. Like I said, it started with, I felt like I was supposed to hit on the fear of God and the awe of God. And then I'm like, and then what do I do with that? Well, this is where this lands. What is your filter? Are you set on success? Are you set on being a certain image? Are you seeking approval from people? Are you bitter and angry at the world? Are you hiding from problems trying to protect yourself? Are you certain only bad things happen to you? (laughs) There's a whole lot more filters we could go through. But what if suddenly your filter is your awe? What if you truly look to our creator in awe? What changes? Honestly, it could look rather radical. You develop an attitude of gratitude for pretty much everything. You realize that ownership is a lie and stewardship is vital. You love people, all people, because God made them all. And God has a plan for all of them. Material items are no longer a goal. You are seeking him now more than anything. Your selfish behavior falls away addictions are broken. Seriously, I have seen it. Relationships are healed. You serve earnestly. You give generously. You live righteously. You seek wisdom. You look to him when it's time to make decisions and you truly rely on him, not yourself. So many would think that this means you now live under a heavy burden of rules, but that's a lie. That's a lie from the enemy. And this is actually where you dwell in freedom like you've never had and purpose like you've never known. But (laughs) if this all sounds like, yes, I'm in, I am so in and I hope you are because that's how I'm feeling right now. Don't try to do it alone because that goes back to the relying on yourself doesn't it luke 9 37 through 45 and mark 9 14 through 29 tells a story of a demon possessed boy and i i had to pause on this one too because basically this is a point where god 
or Jesus turns around and kind of rebukes the disciples of and says like you faithless people how long must I put up with you and my initial thought was like wow Jesus that's a little harsh <laughs> and it doesn't feel like it came from someone who speaks of love but again I mean this is Jesus was our image of God here on earth and you know we while we relate to him because of his human form there is there is that perfect image of while he is loving and caring and compassionate, he corrects and, and he, and he shapes you to be who you're meant to be. And he knew how important it would be for these disciples to be able to carry on without him. And so I had to dive in a little bit on this. Like, why did he get so harsh on them? And the bottom line was, is, Shortly before this happened, he had truly instilled in them, you have the power, the power to move a mountain, the power to cast out demons. You have the power. He went up on the mountain by himself, left them alone, and he came back and the, the father was like, oh, thank goodness Jesus is here because these guys can't do it. <laughs> They've tried and... Um, they couldn't do it. And so Jesus basically immediately casts the demon out and says the, you faithless people, how long may I, must I put up with you? And then he also says, this is the kind of demon that can only be cast out by prayer. The, the most important thing was you would think that prayer would have been their first attack and yet they completely forgot to pray. And so what you can take away from that is that sometimes like we have the strength, the ability, the power, the wisdom, we have all those things at our fingertips as followers of God and, and as, um, you know, being in the inheritance of the kingdom, but we cannot, cannot, cannot forget to rely on him and forget where the source of the power comes from. So again, of course, that's still keeping that era in check and, and that we remain very humble and very plugged into his power. I know that's another episode that I do recommend listening to. That was, um, I feel like a pretty good one that relates to this, but they forgot to pray. So when you're going on this journey, seek him earnestly, seek him reverently, and with these thoughts in mind, just let him do his thing. So without Yura, we truly cannot be in God's presence. That's that's true. Without Yura, we cannot gain godly wisdom. And remember again, Yura is the true, what they refer to as the fear of the Lord. This is awe, respect, humility, and all those things. Without Yura we don't make changes and we don't align with whom he intends us to be. With Yura, we have hope, freedom, all those things. With Yura, our priorities completely change. With Yura, we are humble and our comfort and needs and all those things are so much less important suddenly. Approval. It's, it just doesn't matter anymore. And I think that this one, this quote is really significant. So I hope you, this one kind of, kind of leave in with this a little bit. Woodrow Kroll, hopefully said his name, right? Said, fear God and you will have nothing else to fear. And I hope you can understand that now after we really worked through 
what that really means and what that looks like. The bottom line is, is this changes everything. When we fear God, we have nothing else to fear. And that (laughs) is where I will kind of leave off with this one. If this episode blessed you in any way, shape, or form, please share it with someone because this is how we reach more people. This is how we spread this amazing word he gives to me to share to you. I feel like he wants you to pass it on. Um, leaving reviews helps us actually, um, it boosts us up and helps us to be found more. And, uh, always, if you need me reach out and I'll pray for you, but I always pray for the listeners. Either way, you're in my thoughts and prayers. I hope you have the most amazing Easter in, in awe and reverence. Don't let any of the world creep in. And, and just rest to his feet in the awe and wonder and be grateful for the amazing, amazing things that he has done and given you and so forth. Have a great week. I will be praying for you as always.